Pulse Audio Podcast Network. A first-class citizen does not beg for freedom. A first-class citizen does not plead to the white power structure to give him something that the whites have no power to give or take away. Human rights are human rights, not white rights. That was a quote by Gloria Richardson, who did a lot of civil rights protests in Maryland during the 1960s. So I just found that, and I wanted to bring it up because... It is Black History Month, and this is Whining About History, where we whine about women that you may not have heard of while we drink some wine. And I just was a very poignant quote. We, uh, in our last episode, we got pretty heavy, and we've been thinking a lot about <laughs> the civil rights movement, what people have had to endure just to get some, the same basic human rights as anyone else. And you know what, honestly, uh, talking about women of color is right up our alley because we talk about women that you probably haven't heard of and women of color are even more marginalized Mm -hmm. than white women. So there we go. And if you add like being LGBTQ plus or anything to that, then even more so. Oh my God. Seriously, check out our episode on Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera. Yeah. Yeah. That was like a long time ago. It was. Oh my God. That was like in our first year. (gasps) We were such babies. Yes. Well, that is Kelly. I am Kelly, and that is Emily. I am Emily. I Emily, therefore I am. There you go. <laughs> Honestly, I what I find so interesting about that quote is if someone said that today, they would probably be criticized for like, oh, but you're just being divisive, calling out white people. It's like mm. white people matter too. Sh- shut the fuck up. No one said they didn't. Unless they're women or gay or LGBTQ plus. Right. Like, <laughs> shut up. <laughs> But it's never the gay LGBTQ plus or anyone else that's saying that. It's always, not always. I was going to say. Usually white men. Yeah, it's people who are are in charge of the power structure that are like, no, you're just, you're being divisive. It's like, I don't know, calling it for what it is, isn't it? Like, right. Then don't make it that. Oh my God, sorry. I Let the change drinking. happen. I have been drinking and I am jolly with rage. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, um, another quick disclaimer. Obviously, we do not just cover black women during Black History Month. We cover them year round, but because people are being encouraged to engage in black history and stories of black people, we, we want helping. to, yeah, we want to put it out there because people are actively engaging in it. And we're like, hey, here's some shit to engage with. Listen. Learn. Put it in your ear holes. Also, it is really cool for us to learn because there's so many parts about American history, black history, civil rights history, world history that we were not privy to. Right. And as sad as it is, it is a lot easier to find sources what, during Black History Month. It actually really is. It's kind of like uh, we will. Which is a little heartbreaking. Our, uh, our podcast will tend to end up on like lists and articles during Women's History Month because everyone's like, oh, women's history, let's elevate that, which honestly I'm not mad about. I'm right. like, yeah. I think that's only happened once and that was in our first year, but hey, we can pretend it was lists. Hey, plural. If you don't believe in the plural, <laughs> it won't happen. All the plural. Be- clap if you plural. 
Clap if you believe in the plural. Oh my God. All right. Well, uh, we do have a quick say their name. We do. It's not that quick, but. Well, it's amazing. Honestly, I am so freaking excited. And this is the kind of listener outreach that we I mean, desperately we like need in our lives. Listener outreach. Yes, but, but this you know. is amazing because it speaks to our historical side and our spooky side. So uh, our listener, Jordan, um, message us and they said that they or not they she um messaged us and said that she listened to our episode on marion mahoney griffin and she she even said she's like i'm a little behind but you know (laughs) um but she lived in chicago a few years ago and was actually renting the house that um marion spent the last 20 years of her life in and so that's how she found our podcast because she was obsessed with Marion and, you know. And just real quick for anyone who doesn't remember, Marion Mahoney Griffin was an architect and mm-hmm. she was known for the prairie, like bringing the prairie style into popularity. Yeah, but she pretty. was like overshadowed, was it by Frank Lloyd Wright? I believe so. It was either him or one of the other male architects from around that time. It's like, he's like the only male architect. I know, he's the only one I can think of. Yeah. So it was probably him. <laughs> Um, but so she reached out and she let us know about that. And she said, I wanted to let you know that my mind was blown when you talked about her belief in ghosts because my roommate and I literally thought our house was haunted and always made jokes slash half serious guesses that it was Marion. You guys just confirmed for me further that I got to live in a house that is haunted by a boss ass bitch. Um, and then she sent us some pictures of the house at our request and then she also sent us some spooky ghost stories and stuff so this is her next message so she said there's a total of three fireplaces in the entire house that she designed and had put in um and there were small things that happened here and there and some bigger things like it would randomly smell like rotten eggs and the landlord put in a bunch of money into the plumbing and everything but nothing ever made the smell better um there was also a porch on their portion of the house. It, it sounds like it was, it says, we lived on the first floor and our landlord, an architect who is actually the one who told us about her, had this um, black door that logically didn't lead anywhere in the house. Oh my God. It might have at one point, but renovations and whatnot, because it sounds like it must have become a duplex or something. Yeah. Um, but renovations and whatnot basically made this a door to nowhere. We decided to have a Halloween party one year and hung a sign on it telling people if they were going to smoke, not to ash in our yard. Twice we hung it up and twice it ha- it was taken down and placed on a chair on the opposite side of the porch. Neither us nor our landlord moved it. <gasps> um, and so she said, yeah, that's a couple of things that happened. Uh, I think that it's really cool that she's getting her name out there and much deserved recognition. I just think that if she believed in interacting with the spirit world like that, she might stick around to try and prove her point. I love this idea that, okay, so it sounds the landlord's an architect. And I love the idea that Marion from Beyond the Grave is like trolling another architect because he's putting all this money into the plumbing and she's like, the smell's not gonna go away. What what I kind (laughs) of hope is that the smell went away for like a day and then just came back. (laughs) Or maybe she's like, I'm sorry, um, you turned this into a duplex and it does not meet my architectural vision. So I'm gonna fuck with you now. I also like that the door that leads to nowhere that's on this porch is a black door. Yeah, like very Winchester Mystery Mansion-esque. Like, oh yeah, we have a haunted house. Uh, that a famous woman was lived in for the last 20 years of her life and we're going to add a door to nowhere and we're going to paint it, paint it, paint it black. That or it's part of the original house. Yeah, and then when they made it a duplex, it just went, you know, nowhere. I actually love that more. So 
thank you, Jordan, for telling us your stories. That's awesome. That's super cool that you got to live there. I love, I love that living there inspired Jordan to kind of look get into into Marion. Yeah, because I had never heard of her until you covered her. She's really cool, and I remember we looked up some of her like uh, architect her buildings after, and like there are still some around. Um, and but it was really cool. And we'll we'll post the pictures that Jordan shared with us to our Instagram and other social medias. And I just want to say. A little white picket fence has never looked so spooky and sinister. I know. I will say, uh, I think you're, the landlord there needs to do a little um, tree maintenance in the one in the one picture. Yeah. Because it looks a little <laughs> overgrown. Yeah. That, well, that's why Marion's making it smell like egg. She's like, fix this shit, guy. Trim those bushes. <laughs> Get your manscape on with right. the landscape. Curb appeal. Watch yeah. some HGTV. <laughs> I like also just we we talk about some of these historic buildings where the women we've covered lived or worked in and how they're like converted into apartments and other living spaces and how fun it would be to live there. And I'm really envious that Jordan got to live in a house that Marion lived in. Like, oh, my God, that is amazing. And also, I love like if I'm going to have a haunting, I want it to be a badass bitch like Marion. Yeah. Yeah, the one I would look up if you want to, like, look at Marion's work, um, I would look at the Fishwick House. It's Fish, F-I-S-H-W-I-C-K, and then House, Fishwick House. Um, It's an Australian residence. Um, It says built by Walter Burley Griffin, but it also was built by Marion. I was going to say that was her husband who also tended to get credit over her, even though they collaborated. And then she also worked on Clara and Henry Ford, the owner of Ford motor company's house. Mm -hmm. But that was worked on by like a ton of people, including like Frank Lloyd Wright and Marion and a bunch of other people. But that one's pretty neat too. That is amazing. So Jordan, you seriously, you ticked all the boxes. There's history. There's real life experience, there's photos, and there's ghosts. I am here for it. I also love the idea that Marion's like, you don't fucking smoke in here. No, get that shit. (laughs) She's like, no, you don't get to smoke in my house. That's why she's taking the sign down. She's like, I don't want people to smoke at all. Yeah, no, it's it's so bad for you. It's so, take it from me. I'm dead. I know what kills you. Oh my goodness. Well, seriously, Jordan, thank you so much for reaching out. If you have any more ghost stories or any more historical connections, we would love to hear from you. We have, we've covered a lot of women with Chicago connections. So seriously, like people who live, people who live anywhere, we've covered it. If you ever like see a marker or anything, just send us a picture. Or even if it's a woman we haven't covered, send us that stuff because we love it. we'll cover them. Yeah. All right. Well, let's uh, jump into this bottle of wine. This wine was basically made for me. Um, It's called Ministry of the Vinterior. So we are starting off with a pun. Of course. The label also has like a bunch of beautiful flowers and butterflies that are all surrounding a skull. So it's like creepy, cute vintage. And like, seriously, this, I saw this wine and I didn't even think it was just suddenly in my hand yeah it, it I think floated I was into when you my this one I don't know I it, think because it sounds the name sounds familiar I've, I've told you about it because I think I originally bought this for Halloween because it's got the skull on it but we never really got around to drinking it so now here we are so it's a 2018 Cabernet Sauvignon from the north coast and the back of it says mm. oh it's north coast California to oh. be specific 
The North Coast Appalachian, I'm, I don't know if I'm saying that right, everyone come at me, bring it on, has come to be known as one of the best geographic locations to grow world-class Cabernet in the world. World-class Cabernet in the world. You could wordsmith that a little better. With the 2018 vintage, we feel we've found the nexus of both quality and finesse in our Cabernet Sauvignon. This wine shows a lot of fre- a lot of fresh blue fruit character. Blue fruit. What is no? What is blue fruit character? That is all one. It's not like blue fruit comma character. It's blue fruit character. One word comma. I don't know. Spice and earthiness. It makes me think of it's always sunny because Frank goes through a period where he only eats blue foods. He's like, no, blue's good. Blue's good for you. I can't even think of any other blue fruit other than blueberries. I mean, blackberries are kind of blue. No, they're black. No, but they're juicy. They're like kind of blue. They're like purple. Purple. Okay, this reminds me of the time that my plum is purple. This reminds me of no, the plum is plum colored, (laughs) which is purple. (laughs) No, no, it's plum. They wouldn't come up with a new name if it was the same color. This reminds me of a debate my friend and I had because we were trying to remember what color Rafiki's butt was from The Lion King. We're Isn't like, it is red? it uh I think we found it was like kind of an aubergine maroon combo. We actually looked it up online because this is before Disney Plus. So we had to Google the answer. There are apparently blue tomatoes in the universe. Well, there we go. Anyway. So it's it's got blue fruit character, spice, and earthiness. Perfectly pairs well with burgers, grilled or sauced meats, and of course, always enjoyable on its own. Cheers from Chris Nicopolis and Elijah Feister. His butt is blue. Is it blue? It's blue. I thought it was like a magenta. No, it's blue. Oh. I googled it. All right, well... Everyone, take a second. Google Rafiki's butt. That's literally what I Google. I want Google search engines to be like, why is there a sudden spike in people Googling Rafiki's ass? Hold on. (laughs) Wait, are you checking the quote unquote live action or the original? That's what, well, and there's a, there's a new thing that's like Rafiki's stories. I didn't know this is going to be such a rabbit hole. I am terribly sorry. I mean, because he is a, bu- a baboon and yeah. most baboons have blue butts. Yeah, but specifically Rafiki because, you know, animation does not always reflect real life. Yeah, plus he's a hybrid. Rafiki's a hybrid? Yeah, he's a hybrid of a mandrill. Um, he's a mandrill slash baboon hybrid. Oh, that's right, because his face is super... Okay. Wow, so he's not even real. We all there just are became monkeys way smarter. that look very similar to Rafiki, but yeah, because if you look up a mandrill, that's what has like the face. Yeah, like the markings. Um, and they do have naked butts, but um, aren't all of our butts kind of naked? They're, they're bigger, whereas yeah. Rafiki kind of has the skinny body, yeah. like the baboon. Oh my god! Well, but we yeah, apparently his butt is blue. Okay, if someone runs a pub quiz, come up with a Disney theme, and one of the questions has to be... What color is Rafiki's butt? Or what combination of ape monk, ape species is Rafiki? Yeah, what two species Blow are, everyone's are minds, because they're going to be like, no, he's a baboon, right? And you're going to be like, no, 
He's a mandrill baboon. He's a mamboon. A mamboon. Mamboon. <laughs> or a ba- badrill. Badrill. That sounds like a Pokemon. Yeah, it does. Badrill, I choose you. I honestly can't answer, like, because there's pictures of him with a red butt, and then there's pictures of him with a blue butt, but I can't find a picture from the actual fucking movie. Okay, we're going to pause. We're going to... Cue up some Disney Plus and watch The Lion King, and we will come back with you to you with an answer. But see, it's not that easy. Yeah, it's not like a straightforward yeah. thing. Yeah, so thank you. Because every picture of Rafiki is like his face. Oh, you mean there's not just like a huge cache of Rafiki butt pics? No. God damn. You'd think there would be. I'm yeah, you'd think that'd be a niche. You're a niche. I, I wonder if there's like a sub-sub Reddit. Reddit, help me out. <laughs> Animated animal butts. <laughs> That's funny. Okay. Well, um, I think we should cheers. Rafiki's butt. To Rafiki's and Jordan. butt and more so Jordan. Let, let, let's separate those two really quick. Okay. We're done with Rafiki's butt. Cheers Jordan. to Jordan and her haunted herstory house. That was haunted by a bad ass bitch. Yes. We talk about our girl gang. Mm-hmm. We got girl ghosts. Girl gang ghosts. Mm. It's a little. Yeah, but it's a little drier than I thought it would be, but it's got like a good bite to it. And it's got kind of a spice that mellows out very quickly. So I get the, I get the spice and earthiness. I still don't know what blue fruit character is. Mm -mm. I'm imagining someone in a blueberry costume and they're a blue fruit character. Okay. Yeah, like, at, you know, a theme park or something. Or the Fruit of the Loom mascot or something. I don't know. <laughs> okay, well, I think I start. Much to everyone's chagrin. So today I am whining about Lida D. Newman. Ooh. The hairbrush heroine. And that is heroine spelled like hero Hair. lady. Oh, Oh, I thought you were punning it. Oh, shit. Okay, well, now I am. Hold on. Let me change that in my notes so I remember. No, Okay, I, I just typed it out and it looks really terrible. Oh, I'm but sure. You know what? We're going to roll with it because the wine is punny, my notes are punny, and I am a walking pun. So here we go. I can't believe I helped you with a pun. You're you're ba- you're sick. You're like getting pun Stockholm syndrome where you're getting into it and it's going to be it's going to flip on me where I'm going to create a pun monster out of you and I'm, and you're going to destroy me and I'm going to like regret my creation. Yeah. You are. you are my friend, you are my my creature and I am Dr. Frankenstein. There you go. Frankenstein. Anyway, activist, inventor, visionary. Lida D. Newman has influenced all our lives, but I bet you have never heard of her, because I soups didn't. Lida was born sometime in 1885 in Ohio. We don't know the date or the town or much else about her childhood, mm. except that her parents were a steelworker and a housewife. I will let you draw your own conclusions. If the uh, fa- which one is which? Yeah, w- which is which? Maybe the maybe the father was the housewife. I don't know. Lida may have been of mixed race, as she refers to herself on surviving documents as black and mixed race interchangeably. So it's one of those things she may have. You know, we talk about like the way that people perceive you. Yep. 
or if someone's like white passing. And so like if she's perceived to be black, it may just be easier to be like, yeah, I'm black. But she may have actually been mixed race. Doesn't matter, but it's interesting. She found her way to Manhattan working in the San Juan Hill neighborhood as a hair specialist or hairdresser. So she lives her life in Ohio and she's a teenager and she's like, I'm going to go to New York and do hair. So New York may have seemed like a good place for Lida to settle down. The American Civil War ended in the same year she was born, but enslaved black people in New York had been emancipated since 1827. So she's born in 1885. Mm -hmm. People were officially emancipated in 1827 because it was like one of those shitty slow rollout things. Ohio had outlawed slavery as a part of their original constitution in 1802, so they were never a slave-owning state. But with Kentucky, a slave state just across the river, Ohio was decidedly unwelcoming to black immigrants. They're like, hey, we won't enslave you, but like, stay the fuck out. We don't want you either. Yeah, yeah, like, GTFO. Even after slaves, enslaved people were emancipated, if they tried to settle in Ohio, the community would rise up and oppose them. Sad. Any black person entering the state was required to post a $500 bond that guaranteed they would behave and proof that they were free. Wow, why does this sound super familiar like last week where black people and people of color have to prove not only that they're free, but that they're not going to cause trouble because we just assume they're going to? What the fuck? Yeah, basically. Jolly with rage. New York wasn't without its problems, though. Schools would stay segregated until 1920. And in 1854, Elizabeth Jennings Graham, who I covered way back in episode six, took her historic trolley ride, which would be a turning point in ending segregation on public transport, which finally happened in 1865. Yep. So there's a lot of this, like, things going in the right direction happening before Lida's born and before she goes to New York. But it's still, like, not great because obviously this is 1800s America. Uh, So Lida would spend her summers working in Newport, Rhode Island, which I don't know much about Rhode Island, but I'm like, isn't Newport like, oh, they're the Newport Channings. Like, isn't Newport pretty fancy? Kelly, just just agree with me. Just support me in this. Yeah. (laughs) Support me in my assumptions about Newport. It sounds like it is. Yeah. Oh, the Newport ones. Hmm. Um, so, and she would advertise in the Newport Daily News and her ad read, quote, Lida Newman of New York, hair and scalp specialist, begs to announce that she has arrived for her ninth season in Newport and will be glad to receive calls from those desiring treatment. My original method of magnetic manipulation positively cures nervous exhaustion. Shampooing a specialty, 56 Bath Road. Bath? Yeah, yeah. that sounds super fancy. Yeah. I mean... If you have to like be like, yeah, I have a bath on this road. If you have a bath for your own road or a road just for baths. Right. There's a whole town named Bath in England. Yeah, fancy. Yeah. I'm surprised they didn't call it New Bath Road. New Bath Road. (laughs) I like that. So I tried to look this up because I was trying to figure out what magnetic manipulation was. And when I Googled it, a bunch of superhero wiki pages came up describing like Magneto and other people with magnet powers. So I kind of imagine that Lida was claiming to be able to like manipulate the magnetic fields around a person to treat emotional stress. Like maybe she was like an early OG Reiki practitioner. Like, the whole idea of, you know, like, manipulating the energy around someone's body is not new. 
And so in addition to her like hair and scalp stuff, she's like, I'm also just going to mellow you out by manipulating your magnetic fields, which honestly, that's smart. She was also super brand savvy. In 1894, she trademarked the name Vita Cabello, uh, a preparation for hair and scalp and operated using the primary brand name Vita Cabello, which is Spanish for life hair. Life hair? Yeah, because Vita is life. Cabello no, is I, hair. I was just making sure I heard you right. I, I couldn't yeah. tell if you said light or oh, yeah, no. life. Yeah, life. It's, like, uh, it's like from Encanto. Mi vida, my yeah, life. my life. You are mi vida. Tu es mi vida. Thanks. Gracias, de nada. I like that you should have said thank you. You're welcome to yourself. Well, yes, because I am worth thanking and welcoming. So working on hair, Lida must have become incredibly frustrated with brushes of the time. They were made using coarse animal hair and the bristles were gathered tightly together. And this made it super difficult for the bristles, bristles, excuse me, to get through hair. And I actually, my mom had a little baby brush I don't even know if it was from when I was a baby or like even further back, but it was like this little silver looking brush and it had little white bristles that were all super close together. And yeah, it only like, it doesn't get into your hair. It just like combs the very top of it, which I'm sure for a baby is fine, but you know, for a grown ass adult doesn't do shit. People had been working to improve the hairbrush because they sucked. In 1854, Hugh Rock which great name patented what is recognized as the first modern hairbrush. And in 1870, Samuel Fiery patented the brush that uh, had natural bristles on one side. And on the other side, it had wire bristles in the center. And that was surrounded by more natural bristles. Again, everything's very like tight knit and close yeah, together. That's a lot. Yeah. It's, it's like, no, no, no. Adding more bristles is not the problem. <laughs> then, Lida had an idea. She invented what she called the, quote, improved hairbrush. I like, she didn't say new and improved. She's like, no, I'm taking the hairbrush and I'm making it not suck. Yeah, valid. So this one looks like the modern hairbrushes we see today. It had a flat back with a wide rectangular frame. So like, I'm imagining the ones I see at Hy-Vee where it's like those big, like rectangular ones with the wide set plastic bristles Mm -hmm. i'm pretty sure you have that brush yeah basically we have all had that brush i know exactly like yes you you described it and it i pictured it in my head unlike previous hair brushes the bristles were synthetic and spread out across the face of the brush to allow it to pass through the hair more easily it also had a compartment at the bottom to catch dandruff and other debris that could be removed and cleaned this Hmm. meant that users particularly hairdressers could take the bristles out clean them and replace them quickly between clients yeah that sounds a lot more sanitary well and like did they have barbicide back then probs not exactly The brush also included an air chamber that allowed air to flow to the bristles, helping the brush dry faster. So not only are you able to clean it better between clients, but it also dries faster. So it's not going to get like super gunky. So it's great for hairdressers. She described the brush as, quote, simple and durable in construction and very effective when in use, which like sounds like it. Lida filed a patent for her improved hairbrush on July 11th, 1898, and was granted it, she was awarded the patent on November 15th, 1898, Mm -hmm. when she was only around 13 years old. Jesus. Yeah, she's doing all this when she is a 
freaking fetus. <laughs> this made her the third black woman ever to receive a patent. She's also, uh, so she's an independent hairstylist traveling to, well, traveling to wealthy communities in the summer, establishing her own brand with like that fun Spanish vibe to it, which like it. I'm sure in the eight, like 1890s was like super like, oh my exotic. God, that's exotic and fancy. Exotic, yeah, exactly. Um, advertising in the newspaper and inventing all as a child. And it makes me wonder if I should take TikTokers more seriously because she would have killed in the age of social media because she's like this young, driven inventor entrepreneur who is branding herself and marketing herself like what a little, she's like an early influencer. The hairbrush was a game changer and it blows my mind how much it looks like our own hairbrushes. Even though it looks like my brush though, Lydus was designed specifically for black hair. And this is really like part of the game changer of this hairbrush and how I, one of the reasons I think she's so cool. The synthetic bristles were firmer, stronger, and lasted longer than traditional brushes, which would break when used on black hair. Because remember, this is a time uh, not too long after the American Civil War right. where black beauty is not being catered to or encouraged. And you talked about this a lot when you covered Madam C.J. Walker, where black women were just kind of expected to make do with the products for white and yeah. European hair, yep. and it didn't work. And it was like, no, just suck it. Fuck, you know, whatever. You either use the white stuff or you don't, you, you don't do anything with your hair. Yeah. 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 And then just the, how humanizing it was to take care of yourself and your personal appearance, especially in the, you know, post-American civil war days. The synthetic materials also made the hairbrush easier and cheaper to manufacture, making it more accessible to women of different social classes. So, Everyone yeah. can have this freaking Yay. brush. It's the best thing on the block. In short, she was a hairbrush heroine. Heck yeah. Fucking nailed it. Lida wasn't just changing the world of hair care. She was also a suffragist, suffragist, yeah, fighting for the right to vote. She was known for canvassing neighborhoods across New York City to stir support and even hosted street meetings to educate passersby about the movement and gain their support. However, as we've talked about before, women's suffrage in the United States was not super inclusive. Many women would be left out of the 19th Amendment, and even black women who were included faced other barriers to voting, such as literacy tests, laws that prevented... <laughs> Sorry, like, I'm like... I just had a moment where my mouth didn't want to complete this sentence because it makes me so angry, and it, like, shut down... <laughs> laws that prevented descendants of slaves from voting and then straight up violence and more like they're like okay well we can't enslave you but how can we keep you from getting any sense of power seriously reconstruction was america's biggest wasted opportunity yeah even before the passing of the 19th amendment black suffragists were relegated to the back of backs of marches like we talked about with ida b wells in episode 74 where she's like i'm not going to the back of the fucking march fuck you Perhaps in response to this inequity, Lida founded the Negro Suffrage Headquarters in Manhattan. This organization empowered black women to become active in fighting their own oppression and recruited an underrepresented group of women for the cause. Because if you need a bunch of women to get together and demand the right to vote, why would you exclude an entire group of women? Yeah, it, yeah, <sighs> it's dumb. 
It's, it's basic marketing. Come on. On August 29th, 1915, the New York Times reported, Suffrage Center for Negroes. And again, this is language of the time. Yep. The Women's Suffrage Party is open to a suffrage he- has opened a suffrage headquarters for colored people at 207 West 63rd Street on Wednesday. This will be in charge of Miss Lyda Newman, who is doing excellent work for the suffrage among her own people. Oh. I, yeah, some of this is... I don't like that word. I know, but... I, I mean, I know it's of the time, but still, like, it just... Ugh. Yeah, there's some stuff that's, like, cringy. The headquarters will be gaily decorated with suffrage posters, flags, and streamers. Many colored women have been asked to play hostess at the new headquarters while Miss Newman goes canvassing amongst voters in the neighborhood. And then on November 2nd of the same year, the New York Times followed up, writing, Headquarters for the work of Negro suffragists was opened at 207 West 63rd Street. Seriously, if anyone like lives there or nearby, take a picture. I want to see what that looks like now. Right. Last evening with a big open air meeting outside the building, Miss Lida Dean Newman is in charge of the work and will continue canvassing and organizing street meetings through the 13th Assembly District from now until Election Day. Dr. Mary Halton and Miss Portia Willis, great name, were among the speakers last evening. 63rd Street was open yesterday as a play street with no traffic from 3 to 9 p.m. And mothers are invited to the headquarters to watch their children play from the windows. I think that part was really cool because they basically blocked the street off and they're like, hey, Women, I know a lot of you have kids, so we're blocking the street off so they can just play without getting run over or something. Right, like people will be here to watch your kids and you can come and participate in the suffrage movement. Exactly. And I'm That's like amazing. That is like man, she she's in the she's in like the early 1900s and she's definitely thinking like with the 2000s brain here. She's like, "Oh, how do we get women involved? We make sure that they can get involved even if they have children." Yeah, because smart. the women were in charge of the children at the time. So we don't know much more about Lida's life because a lot of what we do know are from the publications that I've beautifully quoted from. Mm. But we do know that in 1924, her name can be found on the 51st election district for the New York City list as a registered voter. So we know she was able to register to vote, which we've covered uh, suffragists of color in the past. And a lot of time, whether or not they were able to vote is this big question mark. But, or outright like, oh, they died right before. Or, oh, yeah. They know. like, oh, we either know they didn't or we don't know. So I was very happy to see that Lida was able to register to vote. Most of what we know about Lida is thanks to written evidence of her existence, newspaper advertisements, patent documents, reports on her activism. We don't know about her parents, childhood, personal experiences, or even the day she died, which leads me to believe she's still alive. Death certificate or it didn't happen. I agree. <laughs> she's still out there. Unfortunately, Lida is one of the many lost suffragists that fought for women's right to vote, and we salute her. Cheers, Lida. You hairbrush heroin suffragist badass bitch. You like really wound up for that one. I'm like, please don't break my cups. We will see. <laughs> <laughs> no, we're going to save that for our uh, three-year anniversary. Kelly and I are going to do a video of us just like smashing our glasses. And then we're going to live tweet to our patrons, us at the ER getting our hands stitched yep. up. Together, next to each other. Yeah, we're going to do like a video of us explaining it, to the Facebook doctor live. what happened. We'll Facebook live the whole thing. <laughs> oh my God. That's funny. 
So I am covering a woman with the most generic name ever. Okay. Her name is Amanda Smith. Oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) So think of like Googling that name. Can you imagine? There's, I bet the first results are like, there are 8 billion Amanda Smiths on LinkedIn right now. So you know how like Wikipedia will sometimes have like, they have like the specific people, but then they'll have like a generic one. Yeah. Amanda Smith is, has enough entries that you can click on like the undefined version of it and like view the list of people named Amanda Smith. Okay. I hope there's an Amanda Smith out there and that her senior quote was, I am undefined. Yeah. There you go. (laughs) So Amanda was born as a slave, two slaves in Long Green, Maryland, which is a small town um, near Baltimore. Her father was Samuel Berry and her mother was Miriam. She was the oldest of 13 siblings. Oh my goodness. Um, her father was a well-trusted man though and, and very liked even, you know, for being a slave. Um, he was so well-liked and so well-trusted that when his master died, his master's widow trusted him enough to place him in charge of her farm. Oh shit. So like he was, you know... Like, way up there. Yeah, like, there's a big asterisk next to that well-liked and well-trusted because he's Huge. still an enslaved person. But yeah. Um, after his duties for the day, his master, or his master's widow, I suppose, would allow um, Samuel to go out and earn extra money for himself and his family, and many nights he would go without sleep because he was busy making brooms and husk mats for the market to, to make extra cash for his family. Aww. He was devoted to the goal of freedom, and he first purchased his freedom and then made it his mission to buy his families. I was just going to say, because in some places you could purchase your freedom, but it's incredibly difficult because how as an enslaved person do you like have a side hustle? Right. But he kind of had one. Yeah. But like, I, so he probably just, I wonder if he just saved and saved and saved. Oh no. Right. But just the fact that he was able to make right. money on the side and keep that money and it I didn't know. automatically go to the family that was enslaving him. Right. And they, like, allowed it. Like, it wasn't, like, behind their back either. It was, like, they allowed him to do it. It's, it's, kind of wish they would just be, like, hey. Hey, be free. Yeah, let's, like, pay you for your work because you're right. cool. I don't know. Um, he did go on to buy his family's freedom. And once that was secured, they moved to Pennsylvania. Can you imagine? I, I maybe I shouldn't be so focused on, like, the monetary side of this. But buying the freedom of... 15 people because if she's I mean, the youngest of, of 13 if all 13 children survived oh it's still, it never said still but that's like, like it's still a lot of people and just i don't know his like dedication his work ethic like amazing good god yeah. that poor man though he shouldn't have never had to do that i know so growing up, she had the, uh, Amanda actually had the advantage of learning to read and write. Wow. Quote, her father made it a regular practice on Sunday mornings to read his family from the, read to his family from the Bible. Her mother helped her learn to read before she was eight and she was actually sent to school. Oh my End God. Quote. Um, so unlike many other enslaved or formal, formerly enslaved children and adults, like I said, she had the privilege of learning not only at an early age, but going to school. Um... Did I say she was the youngest? Yes. She was the oldest of 13 siblings. Oh, okay. I thought I said oldest. My bad. Yeah, so she was the oldest. Um, I thought she was unlucky number 13. No. <laughs> um, so one, her and one of her younger brothers um, actually started attending school when she was eight. So he was probably, 
I'm assuming seven. Yeah. I'm assuming with 13 kids, it was probably like one after the other. Yeah. Well, you know what? Contraception was not widely available, especially to enslaved people at the time. Yeah. So this the school that they got to go to only held summer sessions. I'm assuming only summer sessions for African-American children, but it didn't mm-hmm. say, it didn't specify. And after six weeks of attending, the school was forced to close. Shocker. Oh, that sucks. Um, five years later, however, at the age of 13, they were given another option of attending school. However, this school was five miles from their home, and they would only be taught if there was time after giving the, the teachers had time after giving the white kids their lessons. Oh, my God. So they're begging for educational scraps. So the Smith siblings actually felt that it was not worth traveling the five miles, especially in the cold, to receive lessons only if time permitted. After two, um, after they did attend for two weeks, but then they dropped out and um, got taught at home and sometimes taught themselves or each other. So they were like, it's not worth trekking five miles to maybe get education yeah especially like you mentioned in the cold and i'm just thinking of how cold it's been and i'm like i almost didn't even want to drive over here the 10 minutes in my heated car right (laughs) with only having about three and a half months of formal schooling amanda went to work in york pennsylvania as a servant of a widow with five children um and while there she started attending revival services at the methodist episcopal church got that faith (laughs) um so she would go on to get married um after she moved to york to an unknown man literally could not find his name wow um and they would have a daughter again like literally it didn't even say that she had a daughter until like much later in my story and so i had to like add it back in because otherwise it just sounded weird there's like a little btw footnote she did procreate (laughs) um so she worked as a cook and a washerwoman to provide for herself and her daughter when her husband went to war Um, this was a very unhappy first marriage and ended with the disappearance of her husband in the American Civil War. I was just going to ask, was this the, I kind of forgot the timeline. I assumed American Civil War. War. In 1863, she got married for the second time to a man named James Smith. Also. It wasn't John. At least it wasn't John. That's like the, also the most generic name ever. Um, and eventually would move to him, um, to New York City. And at this point, I assume she had more children again. Mainly because of something that comes up later. And I'm like, at some point she had more children other than her just her daughter. And they only mentioned a daughter with the first husband. So I assume she had more with this guy. Yeah, also contraception is not really a thing right, right now. Right, exactly. She would go on to an ex- experience a sanctification, which is like a type of religious ceremony. I didn't look it up. I was like, okay. it's religious. Is it, um, it maybe it's like a confirmation kind of thing? I would assume it was some kind of conversion. Let some kind of religious initiation. Sanctification literally means to set apart for holy use, that is to make holy or sacred. So I'm assuming maybe they were like blessing a church or something. Okay. Yeah. So she went to a sanctification. Yeah. Oh, she I thought she was sanct- she experienced a sanctification. Oh, I thought she was sanctified. I was like, no. oh my God. She, so she, she no. holy? <laughs> um, so she, she like went to this in 1868 and this led her to hesitantly attempt preaching. So she was going to these revivals mm-hmm. and then she saw the sanctification and she was like, hey, maybe this is something I could do. I'm vibing with this. Right. By 1869. So remember, she got married in 1863. So by 1869, her husband, John James, and, <laughs> and, um, and her children had died. Oh no. Not all of them. 
I hate how you were like giggling leading up. No, to I wasn't sentence. giggling. <laughs> um, I was like, oh god, it was like one of those like nervous giggles. Like I don't want to say this. Yeah, it's um, like oh, we're getting to a sad part. So by the time that Amanda was thirty-two years old, she had lost two husbands and four of her five children. I am going to be 31 this month and that I'm like, I'm too young to like lose anyone (laughs) to be perfectly honest, let alone two husbands and four children. Right. Right. That poor woman. Um, So she started preaching regularly in African-American churches in New York and then New Jersey as well. Um, She started or she attended a religious camp and would go like go to their meetings and revivals and this would help Amanda work through a lot of her grief and avoid depression. Like, she really just threw herself into this. Well, it sounds like instead of bearing down the trauma and loss, she right. dealt with it. Right. You know, which honestly is the best thing. You, However you want to deal with it, what's best for you. Right. Don't ignore it. Yeah, <laughs> it sounds like the this the church was like a place for her to express her grief yeah. in, a, in a healthy way. Yeah. And she did. She immersed herself fully in the African Methodist Episcopal Church, so the AME Church, which I'm like, oh, that's a, it sounds like a movie theater, like because AMC is a movie yeah. theater. Um, and she met with Phoebe Palmer, who is a Methodist preacher um, who led um, a specific movement called the Wesleyan Holiness. Don't ask me what that is. Didn't okay. look it up. In 18... In, um, so she would go to a national camp meeting for the promotion of holiness, um, you know, after all these other meetings mm-hmm. and she began preaching the doctrine, uh, of entire sanctification at these camp meetings. So this is sancti- like sanctifying yourself. Okay. So now she is talking about that prayer for her became her way of life as she trusted, um, God for everything. She said she trusted God for her shoes, the money to buy her system's freedom. Apparently her sister was still a slave. Oh God. Which I'm like, didn't the guy buy his entire family? So I don't know what happened there. Um, Maybe it wasn't until later. And food for her family. Like, so she became well known for all this preaching she did. And she was known for having a beautiful voice being absolutely inspiring and just, you know, like, she basically, like a lot of people, um, I'm trying to think how to word what I want to say. She had like an ethereal presence. Ethereal presence. No. <laughs> <laughs> she was just a really good orator. I can think of what I wanted to say, so we're just going to move on. <laughs> um, so she began to get opportunities to evangelize or preach in the South and the West. So, oh. you know, she was in like New York. And so now she's, you know, moving down. Um, and African, just to, um, African American women in the 19th century took the way they dressed very seriously because, you know, they just got done being slaves and, you know, mm-hmm. they want people to look at them. But I mean, everyone else, this was still very much like Vic, almost Victorian style society mm-hmm. where what you wore like dictated how people viewed you. I mean, that even happens today still. Yeah. But like your, your outward appearance was equal to your virtue. Exactly. So being a preacher but also traveling as much as she did, Amanda had to think out her her dress very, very carefully because this was still like women don't wear pants. Yes. So um, wherever she went, she wore a plain um, bonnet in either black, uh, so plain bonnet and then either a brown or black Quaker wrapper around her shoulder, like dress. And then she carried a carpet bag suitcase. 
You said Quaker rapper, and all I can imagine is like a towel with the Quaker Oats guy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm that's like, funny. That's that's a terrible image to be having right now. Although, if someone came preaching to me with a Quaker Oats like rap on them, right. I'd be like, I'm gonna give you like a solid ten seconds. <laughs> um. So just to let you know, like other people, other women in the 19th century have been described as quote. Um, fraught with volatile meanings as the line between seemingly overly sexual or appearing presumptuously dressed above one's station was a fine one. Because that was the other thing. You have to dress for your station in life. So that was what people said about 19th century women in general. And then if you add being an African-American woman on there, they also were struggling with getting the respect they deserved, even if they were dressed the part of a lady. Yes. You know. Well, and we we've already talked about in like the past couple episodes how women of color have had to take extra steps to prove that they are right. worthy of respect and dignity. And it's like, yep. So this stop. is this is what they said, and this is one hundred percent wording from that day. Okay. So like the reason um, African American women had even more of a struggle was because quote. Shadowed stereotypes bred in slavery of wanton Jezebels and pious mammies. That's that was the you know you either had this like overly pious pert lady or yeah. you had a Jezebel, which was you know. Yeah, let's talk about um, calling enslaved women sluts for a second when they were right. being yeah. raped by you know the white men who claimed ownership over them. Exactly, it was fucking. Bad. How awful is that? Like we we okay, we were literally. Just talking about like the Madonna whore complex and how women take the brunt of like any any sexual activity. Like we were talking about the, you know, right. Tommy Lee Jones and Pam Anderson video. She's a slut, but he's a player. And mm-hmm. yeah, it, it, oh, it's on her because what? No, she can be sexy. She can be a sex symbol as long as I don't actually see her having exactly. sex. That was my point. Yep. Um, so this is everything she's dealing with in America. And her one surviving child. In 1878, um, Amanda managed to arrange for her daughter, Maisie, which I love that name, um, to study in England. Oh, my God. I don't know how that was arranged. but That's amazing. She managed to do that. And so even though she was, you know, preaching throughout the U.S., she was like, I'm going to go with my daughter, obviously. So the two traveled overseas and would end up staying in England for two years. Wow. Um. She would end up preaching in England as well. And this started because on the journey over, so like on the boat, I'm assuming the captain heard that she was a preacher and so invited her to conduct religious services on board the boat. I mean, it's a long trip. Yeah. Um, And she was so modest and like her speech is so powerful that the other passengers, like when they got to England, like spread word about her. So she was kind of like preaching while, you know, her daughter was going to school in England as well. Have you heard this shit? (laughs) She would then, from England, travel to and minister in India, where she would stay for 18 months. She would then move on to um, minister in Africa, where she would spend eight years. Wow. She worked with churches, helping build churches and, you know, evangelizing the people. She would travel to West Africa and Liberia. Um, She did also expand her family by adopting two African boys. Aww. So that's nice. I'm, I'm a sucker for a sweet I adoption know, so story. Can I also just say, I love that her father and mother seem to really emphasize their education. And it's kind of like, this is your way up mm-hmm. and out. 
And she is also imparting that same kind of virtue onto her daughter and fighting for her to get a really good education. And I I, I just love seeing that go down the generations. So while in Africa, uh, Amanda would repeatedly suffer from attacks of quote unquote African fever, which I'm assuming was probably like malaria. Yeah. But, you know, this was still when traveling to Africa was new, so they didn't know what to call it. Yeah. Um, But she persisted in her work anyways, even when she was sick. Um, and she, so she was also, <clears throat> so being an evangelist, she was also a strong proponent of the temperance movement. Mm. So, you know, she wouldn't like us very much <laughs> because as we've mentioned before, temperance was like non-drinking. Yeah. Um, so she pushed the temperance movement both in Africa and when she was, re- and when she returned to the United States again, she was actually invited by noted temperance advocate, um, Reverend Dr. Theodore Ledyard Collier, Jesus, <laughs> to preach at his Lafayette Avenue Presbyterian Church in Brooklyn, New York, which was then the largest church of its denomination. Wow. So she, basically, she got back from Africa in, to America, and he was like, hey, come preach at my giant church. Oh, my God. So that, like, word of her is spreading. Well, and I... The fact that he's got this massive congregation and he's inviting a black woman like, oh, you're a big enough deal to speak in front of my huge congregation. Which then led other people to do the same, such as Minister Phineas Breezy, who was a Methodist minister, also invited her to come lead services at his um, Methodist Episcopal Church as well. I'm going to name my next cat Phineas Breezy. Yeah, right. It's a great name. Like, good God. Amanda would go on to raise funds as she traveled and um, evangelized. Um, ministered. Ministered. Ministered um, it up. And she would start the Amanda Smith Orphanage, an industrial home for abandoned and destitute colored children. Oh. Um, this was an institute for the poor and friendless colored children. It was located in Harvey, which is a suburb um, south of Chicago. So we're back mm-hmm. in Chicago. <laughs> we get everything, um, all Rosalie, back to Chicago. Exactly, apparently. It's the corn. <laughs> the orphanage opened in June 28th, 1899, and the institution provided a home for children and taught them to become self-reliant. So again, she's emphasizing education and bettering yourself. That is, um, I love that. I love that. Even though like most, if like all but one of her children have died, she's like, how can I empower more kids? How can I pass on these virtues that my parents instilled in me and work so hard to instill in me? Right. Um, so She was doing so well that not only was she able to fund this orphanage, but she was also able to send funds back to the UK to help the Ladies Negroes Friend Society in the UK. So she's like helping out all over the place. Um, And she would go on to continue traveling to gather money and support for her work. Quote, support for this institution depended on interracial cooperation for fundraising and an advisory board. To raise funds for the initial costs, Amanda enlisted Methodist interracial cooperation from across the country. Dude, she is like the ultimate networker. Right? So she was super dedicated and put a lot of energy into this home. However, she soon met Conflict with the orphanage due to many financial problems, a fire that would go on to destroy the building, (sighs) conflict between Amanda and some of the staff, complaints from neighbors, failed inspections, whole bunch of stuff. Like, basically, running an orphanage is going to come with some problems. I, I think it, so first of all, an orphanage that fails inspections should not be running. 
I kind of laugh at the idea of them inspecting an orphanage orphanage (laughs) at that time. Because what, like, what were safety standards? They were nothing. Right. Like, oh, is this a hole in the ground? Cool. Exactly. (laughs) They don't care. Um, In the early years of the 20th century, Amanda continued to visit various nations and gained their reputation as, quote, God's image carved in ebony. Oh, so she was like her voice and her preaching was that powerful. She would go on to retire to Sebring, Florida in 1912 due to her failing health. She published an autobiography um, titled The Story of the Lord's Dealing with Mrs. Amanda Smith, the colored evangelist containing an account of her life, work of faith and her travels in America, England, Ireland, Scotland, India and Africa as an independent missionary. That was the entitled tire of the book. That's like the 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 thesis of your research exactly. paper where it's like, oh, no, the thesis is actually the first three pages. Yeah. <laughs> she would go on to die in 1915 at the age of 78. Two years following her death, another fire would break out in the, Adman- uh, the Amanda Smith or orphanage which would kill two girls and close the building for good no that is so sad so amanda smith was a methodist preacher a former slave who would go on to fund her own orphanage as well as become a leader in you know the methodist teachings and entire sanctification she was referred to as god's image carved in ebony and there is an, I think she's still alive. There's an international preacher ma- named the Reverend Dr. A. Louise Bonaparte. And that is her great, great granddaughter. <gasps> oh my God. So a little bit of Amanda is still in the world and she has a super not generic name. <laughs> right. Oh my goodness. I, so what I think is interesting, I, Kelly, I know you and I personally are kind of like jaded when it comes to organized religion, but when we cover women who are, have a strong sense of faith and who do participate in religion, you know, especially she's like a minister, but then they use that to guide like virtuous principles. Like I'm going to empower other people of color. I'm going to house black children who wouldn't otherwise have anywhere to go. I, I, that's the part that really gets me. It's not so much the why or even the faith behind it. It's what she did with that. And to be perfectly honest, I don't, I, I wouldn't be surprised of anyone being super religious after having that kind of upbringing and being so grateful for what you have because she, she was afforded so much more than a lot of other people were because her parents just worked the hell out of it for her. Yeah, that is amazing. And, you know, it it makes me wonder, like, where would we be as a society and where would families and individuals be if they had also gotten those kinds of chances? And not that she had an easy road. It's not like anyone handed her anything. Right. But, you know, it's just with a with some encouragement and some opportunity. How much better off would we all be? I know it's interesting. That's really cool. Yeah, I, I came across her and I was like, yep, this is getting covered. That's awesome. I love it. Well, Kelly, what are you thankful for? What am I thankful for? I am thankful. This is going to sound real dumb. I'm really thankful that I can put my hair in a ponytail again. <laughs> we were talking. I told you I was going to come up with this. Yep. Um, But for the longest time, because my hair got like really thin for a while after I had a surgery... And so it wasn't like growing super fast because I had cut it to shoulder length like before my surgery. 
And for the longest time, like if I wanted to put up a ponytail, it was like the short little like stubby ponytail. So I was always putting it up with clips. And yesterday or two days ago, I couldn't find a clip. So I was like, oh, I guess I'll try to put it in a ponytail. I haven't tried in a while. And I'm like, oh my God, I have a real like actual decent length ponytail. I was really excited. Anyone who has grown out their hair remembers the moment that they were able to put their hair in a ponytail and what an exciting milestone it is. Yeah. <laughs> so I was very excited, even though it's kind of like a dumb thing, but you know, you well, need, sometimes it's the little things in life. It's kind of like this milestone marker. Cause like you said, after that surgery, your hair went through this change and it's kind of like a a marker of like return to normalcy yeah it was nice that's awesome your hair looks super cute too thanks how about you um i'm really thankful that we got to see the radium girls we posted about our social media and by the time this episode comes out that's gonna feel like a million years ago but um a local a local theater company was putting on radium girls and i saw it Oh God, I think I learned about it in October and immediately texted Kelly like, we're doing this. This is not a choice. This is just something that is going to happen and you need to submit to it. And actually I like blocked out all the days it was showing on my calendar so I wouldn't forget it. So You're like one of these days we're going. Yeah. So as part as Ke- as part of Kelly's uh Christmas present, I got us tickets and it was really good. It was good. I liked it. It was it was one of those things, um, I'm really glad that we read Kate Moore's book, The Radium Girls, which if you haven't read it, what are you even doing? Right. Um, Because it gave us a lot of background that maybe we wouldn't have gotten from the play, or it just gave us kind of like a deeper understanding of what was going on. It was really, really interesting. And the cast did such a wonderful job. And I, I just, I found it really compelling, kind of this, you know good and evil and like do are the do these people know that they're bad or doing the wrong you know just kind of that like I don't know the complexity of it because uh Mr. Roder's character he was he was the president of the United States Radium Company and he was like doctoring you know findings that were proving that his employees were being poisoned by radium but he was definitely portrayed as a more complex character in the play where it was like you, you as the viewer have to decide how much is he lying to himself and how much of the lies do he, does right. he believe? It's really interesting. And then his wife, who I'm like, I never even like imagined him being married because it didn't really so come up in the book because she is like trying to come to terms with like, are you do are you hurting people? And he's like, no, I'm not. And like, is she, she's like choosing whether or not to believe the lie, and like that's very complicated. And I definitely didn't cry at the end. And I was a I started, grown up. I started tearing up. I was an emotionally stable adult. But yeah, it was it was excellent. So I'm I'm happy we made like a whole girls' night of it. We got dressed up, went to the theater, and it was awesome. It was it was nice for us to do something that was not podcast related, but still like super in our wheelhouse. Yeah, it was it was a lot of fun. It was good. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for listening to another episode of Whining About Herstory. Like us on Facebook at Whining About Herstory and Instagram at WAHpod. No. Twitter at WAH underscore pod. Our website is whiningaboutherstory.com and our email is whiningaboutherstory at gmail.com where we would love to hear from you on any of those. We also have a merch store, which is spreadshirt.com if you search whining about her street. Otherwise, there's a tab on our website that says merch, and you can just buy it right there. It's pretty sweet. We got some great stuff. We also have a Patreon where you can donate for as little as $1. $1!
to keep the wine flowing. One dollar. Do I have one dollar? One dollar. One dollar. Two dollar. No, actually, it goes right up to five. Five dollars. Five dollars. <laughs> Ten dollars. So one billion dollars. <laughs> I mean, you can come live with me if you give me a billion dollars. Oh, my God. I will. Shit, there's a lot of stuff I would do for a yeah, billion right? dollars. I wouldn't have to work ever again. Oh, uh, I probably shouldn't go down that road because it gets real immoral <laughs> let's, let's real quick. <laughs> <laughs> and also rate us five stars wherever you listen. We have seen you guys leaving five star reviews on Spotify and you. we are freaking out. We love you so much. So much. So much. Ah. All right. Uh, well, thank you again for listening to another episode of Whining About Her Street. I'm Emily. I'm Kelly. And have an empowered day. Bye. My, my brain was like.